Today's text is from Galatians chapter 2, verses 11 through 21. Hear the word of the Lord. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face, because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law no one will be justified. But if, in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law I died to the law, so that I might live to God. I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, it was the roaring 20s, the age of jazz, in between the atrocities of World War I and the atrocities of World War II. And right there in middle America in Chicago, two teenagers meet for the first time and it's magical. Carolyn Metzger, a teenager, has a full-time job and when she takes a break from her job, she loves to go with her girlfriends to a park right there around Chicago. And while she's there, she sees a young man, Gordon Farrell, uh, she affectionately refers to as goggles uh, because he has these thick-rimmed glasses that were all the rage in the 20s. And looking back on this moment, I have the historical documentation, she writes later in life, my eyes were on Goggles Gordon. I didn't know his name, but spied a fence about two feet high, and I got up and I started to walk on it. I had little trouble balancing, but I was hoping he would come and help me. Sure enough, he came and held out his hand. I gave him mine, and it seems I've been hanging on ever since. This is a really beautiful story, but to be very clear, it was not an easy one. Uh, a couple weeks, or these last couple weeks, I was in Columbus, Ohio. I had a friend getting married and a family member getting married, and so I got some time with my parents, and my mom began to tell me, to recount to me the story of my great-grandparents, Carolyn Metzger and Gordon Farrell. Carolyn Metzger was a well-to-do Prussian girl, um, had a lot ahead of her. She was already working full-time at age 13 in a bakery and had to pay her father $5 a month for room and board. Um, all this is, I've got the documentation up there. I've been reading it. It's like, it's fascinating. And then my great-grandfather was Gordon Farrell, who was a young Jewish man training to be an engineer. And it seemed like everything was ahead of them. They were excited about life. 
But despite the fact of, of Gordon's actually pretty prestigious heritage, he had a, a grandfather who went to Bonn University in West Germany, which was one of the most prestigious universities at the end of the 19th century, at the height of the Enlightenment, and was actually a doctor for Maximilian when he came over to Mexico. Despite like this prestigious history, there were plenty of people in Carolyn's family who did not like Gordon for one reason, because he was a Jew. Not because of his religious affiliation, but because of his ethnicity, because at this point in his life, he was actually an atheist. So what do they do? These two lovers smitten with each other. What do they do at the 1920s when it feels like the world is against them? They do what only, you know, lovers can do. They elope. And they keep it hidden for like months. Carolyn's still living with her mom and her dad, you know. And, and you know, my great-grandfather keeps finding the marriage license and threatening to tell her parents until finally it leaks. And most of Carolyn's family finally come around, seeing Gordon as a really great man who's actually really prestigious and has a lot of prospects. Most of her family come around except for mainly her grandpa. Her grandpa was a Prussian general, he was actually a really wealthy gentleman. And he was a Lutheran, but despite his religious heritage, he absolutely hated the Jews. So much so that when he died, when he died in his inherent, in his will, he left every one of his grandchildren a pretty hefty sum. But when he got to Carolyn, he left her one dollar. I mean, almost leaving her nothing would have not had the same sting, but he was making a statement that because she had married a Jew, she and her husband and everything that her marriage represented was not even barely worth a dollar. I mean, can you imagine that moment when the will is being read? Like everybody knows what's happening in that moment. Family, the whispers, the humiliation, the brokenness. How can a man with Christian convictions of any sort treat his granddaughter and her husband with such disdain, prejudice, and hate? You know, as I was thinking about this text today and really the story, what's really heartbreaking is that this isn't a unique situation, is it? In every generation, countless of, there are countless of individuals who are recipients of bigotry, of prejudice, and hatred. In every generation, in every country, in every community, even in many church communities, there is this collective us and then there's them. You know them, those people, the other those who, for whatever reason, didn't measure up, don't meet your cultural standards, and so aren't worthy of your time, your money, and especially not your respect. And what we come to find is that every culture has an other. Every culture. I was listening to a podcast about how in punk culture, like this place where it's supposed to be throwing off all the shackles of authority and all these other cultural norms, yet there is an other there that they ostracize certain individuals in punk culture because you don't fit the norm. Every culture and every generation has another. And what's the role of the church here? What, what are we supposed to do? I mean, is this just a social issue that kind of carries forth some of our, or vies for our marginal attention when, when it sparks up? Or is this of such a degree, is prejudice of such a degree that it is a gospel issue? And for those of you who aren't familiar with that language, what I mean by that is, 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 is prejudice such an extreme issue that if left unaddressed, it could undermine the very work of God in the church, in any church, in this church. 
And what we find in our passage this morning and actually is echoed throughout the narrative of Scripture is that there is a resounding yes. This is not a social issue on the margins, but a gospel issue at its core. That despite every culture having an other, when you get to the gospel, we find that the gospel has no room for an other category. Which is why as we're walking through this letter to the Galatians, we've titled this series, No Other. First and foremost is Paul being zealous to get at the core of the gospel when there's all of these distortions happening in the first century to highlight first and foremost, yes, that there is this exclusivity in our vertical connection to who God is through Jesus, but simultaneously and intertwined with that is an inclusivity horizontally. This good news, this gospel, has huge ramifications for community and what it means to live this new life that Christ offers us now. And we can't afford to miss this. Because if we miss this, listen, this church community will become toxic. This church community will continue to breed segregation, bifurcation, and silos that are not warranted at all by the community, the body of Christ that Christ himself has designed. We'll find that we're actually undercutting the gospel, misrepresenting Jesus, and proclaiming to the world that Jesus died for no reason. The gospel has no room for an other category. And yet, while we're walking through our text this morning, we're going to get a clear glimpse, despite that truth, we're going to get a clear glimpse as to how prejudice creeps into the church. We're going to get a clear glimpse on how when the gospel is truly at the core of a community, when the core of the gospel is really centered and actually shaping that community, it naturally eradicates prejudice. And then how the church can actually be what it's called to be, the hope of the world here today. So if you haven't already, would you please turn with me in your Bibles to Galatians chapter 2, beginning in verse 11. If you're using one of our community Bibles, it's found on page number 973. Well, something happens to Peter. There's a whole narrative that's going on behind what Paul is highlighting here in his letter to the church in Galatia. Throughout history, God had worked predominantly through one people group, the, the, the Jews, and if you wanted to be a part of what God was doing, if you wanted to know God, then you needed to do everything you could do to become more Jewish. I mean, everything. And for men, it had a pretty high cost. But God was doing something new in Jesus, something radical in Jesus. And Peter was on the front lines. You see, when the resurrected Jesus was sending out his people, empowered by the Holy Spirit, God was beginning to work in people who weren't Jewish, and doing them really in escalated ways. They weren't eating kosher. They weren't circumcised. They weren't Jewish in their culture. They weren't ethnically Jewish. One example in the book of Acts, which we'll get to when we go back to the book of Acts, is that in Acts chapter 10, Peter has this really robust vision of a curtain that comes down, right? And then, and then God says, take and eat, but there's a pig in there. And Peter's like, hey, 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 I'm not going to do it. And he has to do this three times before Peter gets the point that actually these old cultural defining markers of what it meant to be the people of God have actually, you know, gone by the wayside. And who ultimately defines a follower of Jesus is what you do with Jesus. And he has this amazing encounter with a Gentile, i.e., a non-Jewish person. In the original schema, it was like there were the Jewish people and then there were all the other people. 
but he has this encounter with a Gentile by the name of Cornelius. And Peter comes, and, and Cornelius and his family embrace Jesus, and the Spirit empowers them, and, and, and these amazing things are happening. And it doesn't fit into Peter's normal categories of how God has worked in history because something new is happening with Jesus. They didn't become Jewish. They didn't start eating kosher. They, they weren't circumcised. No. Instead, it was all about Jesus. And it was blowing Peter's mind, so he stopped drawing, drawing these old cultural lines he wasn't immoral, but he wasn't embracing the cultural norms of what it meant to be Jewish anymore and defining the people of God. He was, as we see in Galatians chapter 2, verse 12, eating with Gentiles, which is a big cultural no-no with the old categories based upon what they ate and who they were. He was doing actually what Jesus did. There was no longer the kosher table over here, and the Jewish table over here, there were just Christians eating together. And he's living into this newfound freedom that he has in the gospel that boldly declares because of the work of Jesus on the cross, there is now no distinction of value regardless of race, ethnicity, gender, class, or orientation, meaning what your natural proclivity and your attraction is. There's still sexual immorality, but based upon your orientation, all of everybody is, is invited to the table. You name it. Peter had seen Jesus. He had seen the work of the Spirit, was a part of what God was doing, and he was leaning all in to what God was doing. But then something else happens. Do you see this? Actually, suddenly there were these folks who couldn't let go of these past definitions of cultural acceptance and past definitions of value. These are people who didn't get what God was doing. They didn't get the gospel. And these men from James, Paul calls them the circumcision party. He's defining them by what they define themselves by, these, these essentially Jewish cultural markers. And they would be utterly appalled to find anyone who wasn't circumcised, who wasn't eating kosher, who wasn't leaning into all the Jewish cultural markers of the, the, the old markers of what it meant to be a part of God's family. They would be appalled to see these people now celebrated, not as second-class citizens, but as fully integrated members of the family. And Peter, when they come, Peter draws himself back. Do you see that in verse 12? He stops eating and he draws himself, he separates himself from the Gentiles. Why? The same reason throughout history people have distanced themselves from others. others. Fear. It says Peter is afraid. He's terrified. He was afraid, and we don't know exactly all the categories. It could have been actually motivated by really good things, this fear. Sometimes fear is motivated by good things, but it leads to bad things. And Peter here, he may have been afraid of what these folks were going to say about him, think about him, what other Jewish folks who held these old categories might think or say about the Christian faith or the broader movement. Maybe he had real strong convictions. Okay, maybe this is an important part that I need to sacrifice so that we can further the mission broadly because then we might draw more people in if I live into these old cat. He had a deep-rooted fear that now caused him to separate from the Gentiles. And so Peter, now you notice what Paul calls Peter here? Cephas. That is Aramaic for rock. Peter, the rock. Peter, the apostle, the mouthpiece of God. 
One of the key authorities in the first century church, this rock has become now a stone of stumbling for the church. Do you see this? Isn't this fascinating? And you find this huge chasm of brokenness in the church. Peter, with all of his influence, people who are looking to him as to how the gospel actually defines the way it means or what it looks like to live in community. He allowed some other standards, some other value system outside of the gospel to now take place of the gospel and dictate how he should engage and treat other fellow human beings. And the rest of the Jews we see in the text followed Peter. Even Barnabas. Now, I don't know if you know anything about Barnabas. But Barnabas is like one of the most encouraging, comforting, loving guys in the New Testament. I mean, if he were alive today and you were having a bad te- day, he would send you a text. Be like, love Barney. Like, that's <laughs> the kind of guy he was. And even Barnabas, who's taking his cues from Peter, is like, I don't really understand this, but I know Peter's the author. All of these folks separate from the Gentiles because of Peter's fear. And this prejudice creeps into the church. And you know what Paul calls this shift in Peter's behavior? Look with me at verse 13. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. In the rest of the world, it's called prejudice. But when it happens in the church, Paul unequivocally calls it hypocrisy, moral duplicity, saying one thing and living something completely different. And Paul is outraged at this. According to the Apostle Paul, any form of prejudice is, look at verse 14, conduct that is not in step with the truth of the gospel. He calls this a gospel issue. This is the catalyst for why he raises it. Because this is actually undercutting the truth of the gospel. How? This is where we start to see why he runs right to justification in the following verses when he just got finished talking about prejudice. Verses 15 through 19, Paul says, look, no one is justified. No one is declared right before God because they were born Jewish. No one. The law that shapes Jewish identity and was entrusted to the Jews with all of its regulations, rituals, and cultural norms actually highlights what? Our brokenness. It doesn't puff people up to say, look, I followed all of this, aren't I great? No, he's like, when you're honest with yourself, what does the law do? It kills you. And the law has to kill you because it reveals that there is a need for someone greater than yourself to deal with the problem. And in light of that, then Paul tells us how understanding the gospel, which we spent a lot of time last week just centering in on the core of the gospel, how that gospel transforms how we understand ourselves and our identity. Look at verse 20. Paul writes, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live. I'm dead. But Christ who lives in me. The life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no reason. You see, salvation, forgiveness by God, becoming acceptable to God, being fully accepted member of God's family has nothing to do with any form of earning or rule-keeping, whether it be cultural and even 
If you say you kept the Ten Commandments perfectly, because no one has. I mean, there are no rules that you can follow good enough to earn your place in God's family. Instead, it comes through embracing Jesus and what he had to do on your behalf, that he died in your place. He paid your penalty. And everything you were using before Jesus to divine your value or your worth, it dies right there with Jesus. It wasn't working anyway, and you know it's true. Now Jesus defines you. You have nothing to boast in. No cultural rule following, no moral rule following to boast in other than Christ crucified on your behalf. And so let me ask you, where... Where do we find any sense of superiority or arrogance? Any foundation for that in the gospel? Anybody who has embraced Jesus as to what it means to trust in this good news, where is there any foundation for a Christian to be superior or arrogant towards another? It's absolutely obliterated at the very core truth and the news of the gospel. Where are the grounds for prejudice? Nowhere. You see, the power of the gospel removes the primacy of what, what is often called secondary identity markers that we, attend, we tend to attach our primary identities to, namely race, culture, class, political position, sexuality, fill in the blank. The gospel removes them from having primary voice of defining our value or defining another person's value. Now, to be clear, it's not like those identity markers disappear, okay? Because in experience, colorblindness does not work. It will not build a flourishing community, nor do we see Scripture calling us to that. Thinking that gender is merely a social construct is not the way the world works, and that's not what we see in Scripture. But these are secondary identity markers, and they're placed in their primary place as a place to now submit to Christ. And they take their shape ultimately from Christ having his supremacy over all of these. And these secondary identity markers ought not to be the way we determine the value of anyone else ever, ever, ever. Which is why when Peter backed away from the Gentiles, he was no longer in step with the gospel. He was recreating these old structures that have now been declared extinct because of what God has done in Christ. And what's even scarier when you look through this is that everything that Peter was saying was right on Mark. The only thing that makes distinction is faith in Jesus. And yet how he was living was in complete disconnection from that claim. His hypocrisy was what was so condemning. His life, not what he explicitly said, but what he implicitly lived, and it was disastrous. Not only because it caused other Jews to resurrect these old toxic paradigms, but because also the Gentile Christians there in the first century, if you walk through Galatians, began to doubt that they were really followers of Jesus, that they were really in the family of God until they became Jewish. And that's not what we see at all. That is adding to the gospel. This is why Paul is so, so frustrated and rightfully so because the gospel, the gospel is being attacked here. Desmond Tutu has said, 
One of the most blasphemous consequences of injustice, especially racial injustice, is it can make a child of God doubt he or she is a child of God. And that ought not to be so. This is how prejudice happens in the church. We add to the gospel, and then we therefore live hypocritically and fragment whole communities. And this is why prejudice is a gospel issue, according to Paul. This is why other Christian leaders like John Perkins proclaim, we believe in a gospel that burns through racial and cultural barriers and reconciles people to God and one another. This is why MLK writes in his letter from a Birmingham jail back in 1963, in the midst of a mighty struggle to rid our nation of racial and economic injustice, I've heard many ministers say, those are social issues with which the gospel has no real concern. They haven't read Paul. And I've watched many churches commit themselves to a completely otherworldly religion, which makes a strange, unbiblical distinction between body and soul, between the sacred and secular. This is why Tim Keller writes, in general, the job of the church is to show the world that people who cannot live in love and unity outside of Christ can do so in Christ. One of the greatest failures in our culture is social media. It was this great experiment that if we could just make a community and connect people to one another, then we could further our progress in understanding one another and having thoughtful dialogue. Mm -hmm. So when you get to social media, what do you see? Heightened polarization, attacking without integrity. Just being together isn't good enough. We have to be in Christ and he has to be at the center. He has to be the primary definition of our identity if we can then relate to each other regardless of these secondary identity markers. And thank God when Paul confronted Peter, Peter listened. The early church is a testament to this as they wrestled through Jew and Gentile relations. But in the United States, and even here in Kansas City, it can seem like Peter has just ignored Paul altogether. For example, and this is one example of the many fragmentations that continue to threaten and tear apart the church. For example, Sunday mornings are still the most segregated time in the United States. Still. What would Paul say if he saw that today? What would his letter to the church in Kansas City be? An article in the New York Times is specifically condemning in the midst of highlighting our continued rising of racial tensions where it says, highlights a quiet exodus, why black worshipers are leaving white evangelical churches. There's this greater polarization that's happening in the church. Specifically in racial tensions as well. You see, prejudice in its many forms isn't just a social issue, it's a gospel issue. Because the plausibility of the gospel from the outside world looking in is at stake. What makes you different than anyone else? Well, this news about what Jesus did in the first century, but it actually doesn't shape anything we do today. Mm. So what does the gospel call us to? If we believe the gospel, listen, that the God of the universe, he looked down on a broken humanity while we wanted nothing to do with him. When we didn't fit his perfect law, if we believe that the one the one true God who has the highest place beyond our imagination in beauty and brilliance and power, the one who had every right to be superior to us and to ignore us, to distance himself from us. And when we thought he wasn't worth it, he thought we were worth it. And what did he do? He sent his son to come and live among us. Emmanuel, 
to be with us, to pursue us, to then die for us when we didn't care about him, when we were the ones shouting crucify, and then to rise again that we might have what? Life with him. Not that we might have all his goodies and leave him out of the picture. No, that we might walk with him, know him, and be known by him. This is what's at the center of the gospel, is the ultimate other chasing after the ones who have treasonously attacked, ignored, and even crucified him. When that's the core of your message, the gospel naturally eradicates prejudice when it is put in the center of your life. And it has implications for authentically living in step with that news. And so I just want to give three steps in what is a lifelong journey that these implications that come out of the text here, okay? They're right here in this interaction with Peter and Paul. There's a lot more we could say, and we could spend seminars, people do, but I'm going to give you three from this text, all right? So first, authentically walking in step with the gospel demands we resist isolation. Peter just wanted to be isolated. He just wanted to be at the table with the people who looked like him, talked like him, looked like, you know, thought like him. We have to resist isolation. It feels safe. And actually it feels confirming because you surround yourself in an echo chamber of people who are saying things that you already believe. But that's not what we see the family of God is. Instead, we pursue relationships with people who are different from us and we take initiative. And listen, I, I know that's awkward. And, and I will say too, I'm going to get, can we get real for, as a church for a second? Is that all right? Is that all right? Now, I, I don't know how many times people come up to me and say, Man, Gabe, I wish our church was more diverse. And I'd say, I completely agree. And I know actually a lot of that's on me, pastoral staff and broader structures we have at Christ Community that continue to be tweaked. We have a lot to learn and grow in. I, I, I 100% agree. So that people, regardless of their race, their class, their ethnicity, or, you know, where they stand in orientation, as they're seeking to follow Jesus and what he calls us is his life and how he defines life as pure and holy and good. We have a lot of work so that when people walk into this door, they feel like they can embrace Jesus and be a part of this family and not feel like they need to fit into all these other secondary identity markers. We've, we've got a lot of work. I do have a lot of work. But there's something for each of us to do here. Each of us are a part of this church and you each have a role. I want you to think about this. When you think about your three to five closest friends, does anyone not look like you, think like you, act like you? That's on you. When you think about the mentors in your life, is there anyone who doesn't share your experience? Similar background. The books you're reading, are there any authors who don't share your experience? Listen, this is so crucial. And listen, I know it's awkward because we live in a hyper- political correctness culture where it feels like instead of helping towards reconciliation, you always feel like you're walking on eggshells. I know this is awkward. I know it's painful and you're going to fail. So just, ah, you're going to fail. Okay, you will. But taking awkward steps forward is better than just isolating yourself forever. It's going to be painful. You're going to need to ask for forgiveness a lot. But it's what we're called to. So resist isolation. Don't just eat and live and act with people who look, think, and, look, and, and, and believe like you do. Okay? This is important. But the gospel won't stop us and won't stop there either. Authentically walking in step with the gospel demands we confront prejudice. And first with yourself. First with yourself. Now, listen, if you feel like you have no prejudices, you're either too isolated or too arrogant. <laughs> 
Okay, it got real again. Now, listen, Jesus, he gives a parable in Luke chapter 18 when he's talking to really religious folks, people who think they've got it all together, and he says there are two people who walk into a temple. Sounds like a good joke, but two people walk into a temple. The first is a Pharisee, and what's his prayer? God, I'm so glad I'm not like all of those people. This place of air, well, thank you that you've made me so much better to have it all together. And then the second person who walks into the temple is what? A tax collector, the lowest of the low, who's actually probably propagated some injustice. And walks in and he beats his chest. He looks down at the ground and says, God, give me mercy. I'm a sinner. And Jesus says, the tax collector had it right. Not the Pharisee. Arrogance isolates us all. Every single person, the further you move into a context that you're not familiar with, will reveal some prejudice. And I'm not trying to condemn anyone. This, this is a message for me, okay? Regardless of what, do you see the prejudicial logs in your eyes? Whether you're white, whether you're black, whether you're poor, whether you're rich, whether you're Jew, whether you're Gentile, whether you're gay, whether you're straight, before you go looking for anyone else, confront the prejudice in yourself. Are you listening to the Pauls of our day? Do you know yourself? Do you know how your culture, your class, your gender, whatever it might be, impacts how you see the world? And and are there places where it's distorting the gospel? It did for Peter. Do you see this? It did for Peter. The rock, Cephas. And I'm still learning, and I've got a long, a long way to go. Um, and, and listen, minorities and those who are on the fringes of what is considered majority culture often know their culture best because they have to. Uh, and I say that because I am a person of majority culture. You have to know your culture if you're a minority because you're always trying to figure out who you are in light of all of these dominant cultural realities. But if you find yourself in majority culture, if you're white, middle class, then you probably experience culture as just the way it is. This is life. Doesn't everybody have this kind of life? And this is the way it ought to be? But it may not be true. may not. Every culture, every culture has things that are celebrated because they do line up with Scripture and they need to be challenged. Every culture. And two resources I'm digging into that maybe have helped to you, two books because I love to read, um, two books, um, is White Awake by Daniel Hill, a white guy who humbly has wrestled through this um, uh, in, in a diverse community. And listen, once again, it's, everybody needs to know their culture, not just white people, but white people don't even realize, we often don't even realize we have a culture that we've inadvertently interspersed with the gospel and that is actually leading us to hypocritical lives. So for me, this has been really helpful. Wide Awake, and then secondly, All But Invisible by Nate Collins, who's a gentleman who has same-sex attraction but is seeking to live according to Jesus' traditional sexual ethic that right sex is between one man and one woman for a lifetime within the unity of marriage and trying to navigate what does it look like in our culture to then follow Jesus faithfully. I mean, both of these authors are coming from a biblical lens to navigate culture, identity, and placing Jesus at the center. Both are not longing to condemn, but pursue a more healthy church family built upon the inerrant word of God. Check them out. White Awake by Daniel Hill and All But Invisible by Nate Collins. Are you confronting prejudice in your life? But then after that, then you should confront prejudice wherever God has you your spheres of influence. 
Paul couldn't sit quiet, even when it was an apostle. Do you see this? Paul could not be quiet here. He could not stop because the gospel is at stake in this issue. And he also knew his unique positioning. In a much more hierarchical culture in the first century, right, the apostle Paul goes to the apostle Peter. <laughs> he knew that he had a positioning, he had a sphere of influence that other people felt like they didn't have. Barnabas, the other Jews are like, well, Peter says that. That's probably what we should do. And apostle Paul's like, no, no. I get that Peter's the rock and everything, but I'm also an apostle. And Peter, you can't do that. It's against the gospel. Where has God placed you to stand up for the gospel? Sometimes the greatest sins of our culture are the sins of omission, not the sins of commission. The times we remained silent when we should have spoke up. The times we stayed seated when you should have stood up. And after all of that, authentically walking in step with the gospel demands we keep dying. Jesus, when he, while we were yet sinners, that's when he died for us. And then he beckons to each and every one of us to pick up our cross and follow him, doesn't he? To go and do likewise. It's to follow him in this long obedience in the same direction. Peter started down the road in the right way, but then he backed down. He didn't keep dying for those in his church. He backed away out of fear. Don't let that be your story. When fear rears its ugly head, keep dying for your brother. When our preferences want to take precedence over love, keep dying for your sister. When those secondary identity markers seek to take precedence, keep dying for your brother in Christ when you'd rather just be quiet that day rather than confront prejudice again. Keep dying for your sister. Why? Because that's what Jesus did for us. It's what the gospel claims over us and it's what it means to keep in step with Jesus today. And it's gonna be messy. But I have been crucified with Christ. Therefore, I no longer live but it's Christ who lives in me. And when you deny in very overt or in omissionary ways your brother in Christ, you're denying the Christ within them, which is a very severe reality. And my great-grandparents, Carolyn and Gordon, actually knew this, I think, better than most. After they were married for some time, and I'd love to tell you their testimonies. They became believers. Um, both of them became Christians. When uh, my, my great-grandmother saying, I just wanted to know God. And I was like, I know you're out there and I know what you're like, but I want to know you. And then this other lady was like, I know there's somebody out there who wants to know you, but God, can you bring them to me? And they like met in a, in a pharmacy <laughs> while she was like, it's, it's absolutely astounding what God was doing when she was just chasing after God. And, and then my great-grandfather was an atheist who wanted nothing to do with God, but thought his wife was cheating on him when she was going to church. So he's like, I'm going to go check it out. So it's like, but then he came to know about Jesus. And then they both said, okay, we, who is this? And sure, like we've experienced some great, great, you know, pain and infliction from somebody who had some like religious leanings in the past. But that's not who we see Jesus to be. Actually, we see Jesus creating a church where Jew and Gentile can dwell together and be celebrated and be called family. And so what they did later in life is he became bivocational, meaning he worked as an engineer and they would go from town to town and where there wasn't a church, they would start these like backyard Bible clubs. If anybody knows what those are, that's basically where they would go and like, 
<laughs> Some of you are like, yeah, I remember those. Uh, I used to help my grandparents with those. Um, that you go and you, you, know, you teach children the gospel by holding basically like a VBS, but it was shorter and a lot more homemade, um, <laughs> in a backyard, and you teach them about the gospel, and these kids would come to know Jesus, and then their parents would be like, we want to know Jesus, and then we don't know how to teach our kids the Bible, so then they'd start doing training classes for the parents, and then they'd gather this group together of about 50 or 60 folks, and then they'd help them like set up a church, and then finally when they got sustainable enough to call and sustain a full-time pastor, they would say, God bless you, and they would go do it again. Because sure, they only got a dollar out of the inheritance because the world may say they're not worth it, but they knew God said they were worth it and they thought the church was worth it. Listen, there is no other gospel this world over, but what we can't miss or we will live hypocritical lives to that gospel is that this gospel has no other category. Do you believe that? What does your life say? Let's pray. Father in heaven, we come to you as as the Apostle Paul writes in Ephesians, as the one in whom every family on earth derives its name. We come to you, the creator of this world and the author of all that's good, true, and beautiful. We acknowledge that you have made humanity and all of its glorious diversity to reflect and image your glorious divinity. And yet, I find in myself, we find within all of us the ability and desire to divide and despise fellow image bearers whom we deem as just being other. Father, forgive us for such naivete, ignorance, and really blatant ungodly mindsets. Tear down what you have built, separate what you've brought together, and estrange what you have made familiar. We confess that we have, in various ways, lived out of step with the gospel of Jesus Christ, the gospel that declares all peoples are justified and made righteous in your sight on the basis of Jesus Christ shed blood on our behalf. The gospel that shows no partiality and that reconciles all peoples together as they are reconciled to you. Lord, help us. To see where this gospel has not taken root in our hearts. Convict us by the power of the Spirit. Where we're either desiring to keep people divided or where we're simply indifferent to the division, we see and even create. We confess, God, that we are guilty of not only lacking understanding and compassion towards those who are different, but that we have often justified our indifference and our prejudice in really ungodly ways. Peter did it. God help us. We confess our pride and our arrogance. I confess my pride and my arrogance. O gracious Redeemer, we ask that the light of the gospel would shine into the darkness of our ignorance. We ask that the love of the gospel would warm our hearts towards our neighbors of all backgrounds. We ask that the peace of the gospel would captivate our imaginations and mobilize us in our vocations to work towards the shalom that you're building everything towards. Do this work in us and through us, the power of the gospel, the good news centered on the person of Jesus Christ and what he's done for us might be put on display for the world to see and for the world to know. We pray in Christ's name and for his glory, by the Spirit. Amen. Amen.